I'm Kim Schmidt, Executive Editor of Farm Equipment. Welcome to Farm Equipment's Used Equipment Remarketing Romance Podcast. In this episode, host Casey Seymour of Moving Iron LLC and 21st Century Equipment sits down with Alan Hoskins, President of American Farm Mortgage. Before we head over to their conversations, I wanted to invite you to join us this August 4th through 5th at the Dealership Mind Summit in Omaha, Nebraska. Based on the feedback of past attendees, our Dealer Advisory Board, and the Dealership of the Year Alumni Group, we're bringing back the focus on used equipment remarketing. Space is limited for this dealer-only event. Register today at dealershipmindsummit.com. If this is your first time listening, you can subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, or TuneIn Radio. By subscribing, you're alerted when each new episode is released. In this episode, Casey and Alan start things off reviewing 2019 before talking about the influx of 2012 through 14 mile year equipment that's likely to come in on trade. So Alan is here with me today. I'm in Louisville for a convention that I'm at, and Alan lives in the Louisville area, so I was fortunate enough to have him be here in person, which doesn't happen very much on the Moving Iron Podcast. So Alan, welcome back to the show, man. Casey, I'm glad to be back again. Always enjoy it. All right, man. I appreciate you being on. Well, Alan, there's a lot of stuff going on as normal. Last time we talked was about this time last year when we mm-hmm. talked. We were talking about renewals and those kind of things and what you see happening there and some of the pressures that you see in the overall economy. And not much has changed since then. It feels like it's about the same thing, different song, but uh, same dance feels like for the most part. So kind of give me your kind of what you saw happen in 2019 and then how are the kind of the tea leaves starting to read for 2020? Well, 2019, certainly it's a year that, like many years, we've never seen anything quite like it before. I think we saw some people that were amazed, candidly, at the yields that came in, depending Mm -hmm. upon what area you were in. It was interesting to see some of the June planted corn in our area, how well it actually did. Obviously, there were areas that were just short of a train wreck, if you look at what happened. But if you look in the southern Illinois, southwestern Indiana Western Kentucky area, which is predominantly where the bulk of my customer base is, there were some average yields. There were a few that were a little bit above average. A few, I think the most significant decline I saw, I did see one person had a 45 bushel below corn average, but they were in an area that just, they were abnormally hit. So I would say as a whole, and we're still getting into renewal season, but what we're seeing is but was it Yogi Berra said? It's almost like deja vu all over again. We're seeing it very similar in pattern to what we saw last year. Working capital still stressed. We are seeing folks as they come in and we start looking at the numbers. The big topic was, if you look historically, MFPs. MMPs made a huge difference in 2019. In fact, I think there will be multiple cases where the difference between black ink and red ink was indeed the MMPs. So that's obviously something that people are mindful of as they're going into this crop year, because certainly, as was last year, we were told there wouldn't be any payments. Certainly 2020, we have no way of knowing. If you look at what's happened in the markets, Obviously, the trade issues appear to be moving toward resolution. We've not seen the bounce in the markets. I think there's a number of factors that could be affecting that. But they're still concerned about overall cash flow going into 2020. Again, looking back at 2019, saw some pretty good yields as a whole. And with the challenging conditions we faced, we were extremely fortunate. So. We'll kind of see what goes on here in 2020. Yep. 
So that was the next thing I want to talk to you about. So if you look at all the stuff that we see hidden in a very positive place, you know, USMCA has mm-hmm. gotten, I think it's been ratified. I think it's yes. been taken care of. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Kansas still has to sign off on it yet. But mm-hmm. I mean, for the most part, it's, it's done. Mm-hmm. At least on the Mexico side of it, that's one of our largest trade partners Absolutely. across about every spectrum of the market, whether it's on the protein side or the grain side. They're one of our largest buyers. Absolutely. You look at what's happened as far as trade goes with Japan, getting U.S. beef over there and those mm-hmm. kind of things. And the phase one China thing that's kind of up in the air right now with everything mm-hmm. going on with the coronavirus and all that other crazy stuff happening there. But for the most part, we've seen these stuff happen. And quite frankly, the market hasn't not done anything. I mean, we had our ups and our downs because of it, but overall. So I guess from the economic side of the business and kind of paying attention to what's going on there, what do you think is going to happen with that? It feels like to me that there's plenty of stuff going on right now mm-hmm. in the overall market that says, hey, we should be 100% headed towards a XYZ outcome, right? We should mm-hmm. be on that upward trend. Mm-hmm. And what we're seeing right now is just that interday volatility is so crazy. Absolutely. It's just off the charts. Absolutely. So as a guy that dabbles in the equipment market and a guy mm-hmm. that farms a little bit and mm-hmm. you're a money lender on the farm side, what's your thoughts on that and, and where do you see some give there? Well, I think, first of all, one of the things we kind of need to keep in mind, Casey, volatility is our friend. Absolutely. I know that about that. Without volatility, the ability to generate a profit goes away. Granted, I know some would say yes, but without volatility, our downside risk lessens. I'll certainly concede that point. But I think we have to keep the mindset that volatility in and of itself is not necessarily a negative thing. Number two, I think it also brings back into play something that I've told producers for multiple, multiple, in excess of 15 years. The importance of that written marketing plan is huge because as the volatility of the market increases, there is an emotional effect on all of us as human beings that have something at risk. And when we see those price swings, it creates uncertainty within us. The development of that written marketing plan allows that individual to sort of ignore that white noise to some degree and at predetermined levels make sure that they're putting things in place to ensure profitability or certainly depending upon where their production cost level is, minimize loss. We know that over the past 40 years, I believe there has been at least one profitable selling opportunity in every crop. But I think, Casey, the key point is people looking at their numbers very closely. And again, this goes back to conversations with the lenders. Producers, hold those lenders accountable to some degree. Make sure that they're working with you to help you understand that cost of production and learn where your opportunities are. Because Every operation is different, and it's incredibly important to have that plan in place because we saw a pretty good opportunity. If you look at where input prices were, we saw some good opportunities there. So even with all the wild swings, as much as humanly possible, stay focused on the core things within the business. Where are your inputs? What opportunities are available to you for sale? Where are you from a storage perspective in relation to your total crop? So I think there's a lot of things that come into play there. Yeah, that's the one thing, too. It's that written plan. Chip Miller talks about all the mm-hmm. time. That's the thing that he preaches more than anything. Yes. And it's, it's a great thing. Know where your break-evens are and when you need to sell and when you can make money. And I think that's what we saw. I think a lot of the movement that we saw this year, obviously, mm-hmm. came from when corn hit 450 there for a minute in June-July time frame. Absolutely. And it took a sharp downfall right after that. But if a lot of guys that we were dealing with were locking in some actual 425 across-the-scale type stuff in December for contracting, those kind of things. So those opportunities are 
are few and far between, but like you said, there's always one chance in during the growing year to, to make take advantage of that. And I think that was one of them. If you had your ducks in a row, you mm-hmm. probably could take care of that and, and go. But we saw that towards the end of the year where there was a lot of movement on that use side. So when you were kind of talk about what you're seeing now at the beginning of the year, it feels like there's lots of pent up buying demand. Mm-hmm. right now mm-hmm. how many guys you got coming in talking to you about wanting to upgrade that planner and want to upgrade that piece of equipment it's a great question and honestly my personal opinion the answer to that's not enough okay and here's why i say that i like the way you talk <laughs> <laughs> we've talked about this before as well yeah. when you're trading a planner or a combine anymore you're not just trading iron you're trading technology right. i've sat down with two customers over the most fairly recent period we've looked at what would it do to their operation for example, planting beans. If they go from an air seeder on seven and a half inch spacing to go to a 15 inch splitter with real clutches, what does it do to your seed cost? What does it do to your yield? What does it do to the fact that maybe you can manage your equipment costs a little more effectively because do you really have the need for the air seeder? Can you invest a little more money in a planter? So there's a good example. I recently sat down with a customer looking at trading tractors. And we spent more time talking about the guidance system in the tractor that they were looking at because they were going to be using it for side dressing. There were a number of things that candidly, the investment in the guidance system was as big a part of the decision as the tractor itself. Yeah. And I think, Casey, that's something that is way under discussed today. And I don't know candidly why that is. I don't know if that relates back to lenders. I don't know if it relates back to producers. I suspicion there's probably multiple answers in that. But I think producers need to look at what is the value of the technology that I have. And I'll also say this, what is not having current technology costing you? Because I will argue there is as big of an issue with the cost of not having something as there can be the cost of having it. So I think that's something that needs a little more discussion than it has. And certainly when it's time, I would argue, particularly again, going back to planters and combines, let's talk about the technology side almost before we talk about the iron side, because that technology, I believe, is something that is very under-discussed in the overall profitability of the operation. Yep. Technology is absolutely one of those things that is no longer in the backseat. It's very much ahead of the iron. When you're looking at, how's this going to affect my ability to go out and plant? I mean, is it going to make me more efficient? Am I going to work more hours? All those different things are coming into play. And quite frankly, right now, it's my funny little joke I make all the time is that a guy will run a tractor with the red light buzzing that something bad's going to happen to it a lot longer than they'll go without an AB line in there. And they're, and they're playing when they're out working, you know what I mean? So they'll shut that down long before they shut the machine down. So it's such a critical part of what we see happening. The other flip side of that is with 2014, anyone that listens to this podcast, I talk about this all the time, 2014 and, and into 2013 all the way through to where we're at now, basically the 12, 13, 14 model stuff that we've had that got sold brand new when things were really, really good and really, really hot. Most guys have really sat on that stuff until 17, 18, 19, right? You're starting mm-hmm. to see it kind of trickle in. And I think my f- kind of gut feeling is that 2020 is going to be a big year that guys are going to go in and update what they've got. I really feel like that's going to be a big push this year to what we see happening. The bad side of that is everybody's trading in the same stuff. It's five to seven years old and it's got 
the same kind of hours on it. And we're starting to see the bulge in the equipment marketplace. Quite frankly, I think there's going to be a bubble that pops because of that somewhere in the used equipment marketplace, whether it's just going to affect the older stuff and not so much the newer stuff because it's going to be a very much more demand. But as you start looking at guys' balance sheets and you see what they have for equipment, What's your thought process when they're thinking that it's going to be X and you follow the auction market, you see what's happening out there. Those 12, 14 model combines are 70 to 100,000 bucks, depending on what they are mm-hmm. on the auction market. And are starting to see five to 7,000 hour tractors that are going to be significantly less than I think than what a lot of guys think they are. Mm-hmm. What kind of guidance are you giving them as they start looking to upgrade their stuff? And then kind of what's your thought process as a guy that puts on the used equipment hat? Mm-hmm. What's your thought process about that? The first thing, whenever we talk about that, that I want them to help me understand is share with me where you believe this operation is going to be in about three to five years. Because depending upon where they are in the cycle of their operation, that's going to have a huge bearing on how we discuss that. Mm -hmm. Because if they are at a point where a transition is going to occur in the operation, either to the next generation or perhaps they're just going to retire. We're going to have a different level of discussion that probably I want to make sure that their accountant is part of as well, because we want to make sure that we understand the tax implications of the decisions that they may be making. So we're going to talk about that. What I want to understand from them also, tell me about how you feel about the technology that you're looking at, because Obviously, if you're trading in a 13 model combine and you're going to trade for a 2019 or a 2020, there's going to be a significant change there. Huge. Yeah. We'll get back to Casey and Alan in a moment, but first a quick reminder about the Dealership Mind Summit. Remarketing managers and top dealership management won't want to miss this two-day intensive on used equipment remarketing. Visit dealershipmindsummit.com today to register. Let's get back to the program now as Casey and Alan continue to talk about how Alan advises his clients on equipment purchases and how that relates to the rest of the farmer's operation. They also talk about the possibility of subscription-based service plans. How are they going to employ the opportunities available to them through that additional technology? If they're not really thinking about that, then I would challenge them a little bit to say, okay, let's look at what this can make you. Let's talk about this. Let's also talk about your labor situation because are they better with two combines? Are they better off with one? That's going to come into play. And what I want to do is listen to them first and foremost. Now, assuming that we've had that discussion and it looks as though the trade is going to generate them some value, which I think in most cases it will. What I want to hear from them then is let's talk about your budget as well, because I'm a big believer, Casey, even if a producer has his equipment line fully paid for, I'm a big believer in plugging in a payment for equipment every year, whether you have a debt or not, because if their intention is to trade combines every three years, let's go ahead and plug something into that budget. And granted, I realize savings rates If you look at what deposit accounts are paying, it's not much. I understand that completely. But I will also argue that having that budgeted number plugged in there where you make a payment to yourself, just the same as you would a lending institution, making that payment to yourself and building that cash so that when you get ready to trade, you're trading on your dollars and not debt dollars. Right. 
I think that also is something that needs to be looked at. And when we look at also the speed of technological change that we're seeing, to me, you look at a 700 series combine versus a 600 series, even though they look pretty much the same on the outside, there's a tremendous level of difference there. So I think if technology is really being employed well, then that lends that discussion to say, maybe this trade needs to occur Every year, two years, three years, let's look at the budget. Candidly, if somebody's not employing technology, then let's talk about their mechanical ability. Let's talk about what ability they have to maintain equipment. Let's talk about whether the dealership is going to be doing the biggest part of the maintenance because they can't. And then that helps us frame the discussion about what would make sense to them. Because, yes, if they're running that combine and it's 3,500, 4,000 hours, we know technology aside, pardon me, we know metal fatigue sits in sooner or later. Yeah, yeah that's the thing that worries me most. So yeah. I, it may be that for that producer, it may be rather than that 19 or 20 model combine, maybe that 17 or 18 model combine. And I understand, as you said, there was a lot of equipment sold back in that one point. There's not the same level of volume today Absolutely. with good use equipment. We know, candidly, there's a premium. That's one of the things that I found very interesting about the marketplace. I think we recovered from that glut very quickly. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I've kind of noticed, if I go back 12 months ago and I looked through publications where used equipment is listed and I saw 10, 11, 12 models, no DEF, no DEF, no DEF, mm-hmm. that was extremely prevalent. Well, we kind of, you still see it, I'm not saying you don't, but we've kind of had the DEF in the marketplace enough now. People have realized that it's just something different, something that we have to deal with. They're getting better at understanding that's just a part of the trade. But also from a budget perspective, that has to be factored in as well. I'm still very much bullish on the used equipment market for good quality equipment. I think it's going to continue to be very strong in value. Appearance certainly historically has always sold. The mechanical value of it is important, certainly, but physical appearance tends to help things bring a lot more. And I still see that there's going to be a pretty strong used equipment market out there. And I think also that needs to be considered by producers as they're making their decisions about when am I going to trade? What are they doing to keep that equipment up and increase the value of that trade? Okay, so I think it's bounced around out there a lot in society as a whole is the whole subscription-based model. We see it popping up and more and more things are becoming, you pay X dollars a year, so much a month or whatever else. And you get kind of a a flat kind of service thing Mm -hmm. as a lender. When you, and a lot of dealerships are rolling out with something along those lines Mm -hmm. as a lender. And you start looking at those things. I mean, obviously locking down prices and controlling your overall costs and what your exposure is. Those kind of things are very important to you, but Mm -hmm. What's your thought on subscription based service plans or technology plans or whatever that might be? I think that certainly the market's going to move that way regardless of what we think. Right. That's just a given. I think that can be a friend to some producers as well because I do think there's a point, particularly in the bigger producers, where economies of scale are going to make that more valuable. Absolutely. I think also if you look at the market moving in that direction, it certainly, I think, will ultimately have an effect on the value of tractors as well. Because if you get a tractor back in and it's got full green star with it, yeah. it's a little bit older model, there's value in it. Absolutely. Yeah. And we know that globes, things happen to globes. We know that there's some things that, candidly, the subscription base 
probably turns out better for the producer in the long run. I think one of the reasons I believe that is the fact that if you're subscription-based and there are changes within that system, it allows you to take advantage of those changes much more quickly than it does under the old standalone system. Mm -hmm. So I think there's some value in that, in my opinion, maybe a little bit counter to a lot of lenders. I kind of like that. And granted, I know the argument is also that, yes, but then somebody else controls my system completely. Well, the reality of it is the systems we have now are controllable by someone else. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm not as bothered by the subscription base. I think, kind of like I said about the DEF, mm-hmm. I think at a point subscription base becomes the norm. People become accustomed to it. But I don't think necessarily the subscription base is a bad thing. I want to continue to learn more about it. I want to continue to see how it is going to ultimately play out. But on the surface, I think it can turn out to be very advantageous for most producers. There's been a lot of movement now with the internet of things that we see out there right now that the idea of consignments have gotten kind of a bigger footprint than we've seen in the past, right? Mm -hmm. When I first got in this business, a consignment was just like whatever, you know, we'll consign Mm -hmm. it and no big deal. But now with the prevalence of the internet and the amount of people going to the internet to find equipment, mm-hmm. not only are consignments a big deal, but John Q. Farmer actually going out and advertising his piece of equipment, trying to sell his piece of equipment ahead or whatever else. There's a lot of different companies out there that are specializing mm-hmm. in that kind of stuff. What's your thought of that? And I guess, do you see a pro or obviously the pro is the guy's going to get a little more money for it if he goes out and sells himself, obviously. There's going to be different, just like selling mm-hmm. cars or whatever else. Mm-hmm. From your seat in the bus, when does the risk worth the reward, I guess, is what I'm getting at. And I want to preface my answer by saying I'm giving you probably a personal answer here, maybe okay. more than a banker answer. And I also want to preface it by saying I'm old school. Okay. So let's just qualify <laughs> okay. this right up front. Right on. Okay. I am a huge believer, Casey, that there's a big difference between cost and value. And there have been times where I've cost myself money trying to do something when I could have reached out and probably got some assistance that would have resulted in a better outcome. So I'll say this. If you look, and I would be very interested to see data on this. I don't know that there's any way we can, but it would be very interested to see. If you look at the time spent, the dollars spent, and the ultimate return on the unit being consigned versus dealing with the dealership that I've done business with for years. What did I really make myself doing? And I know the argument is going to be, yes, but then the dealer's going to mark it up. Well, yeah, absolutely. But the dealership is there providing a service, they're providing parts, they're providing the trades. And I would tell you that I think that needs to be considered by that farmer before they look at the consignment route. I'm not against looking at it, but I'll say I think that there needs to be a lot of consideration given of the value that exists between the customer and the dealership. Now, in the case of a farmer selling something on his own, and unfortunately, I saw a case of this several years ago where a local farmer sold a tractor, farmer from about 30 miles away. And when the farmer that bought it got it home, he perceived that there was something wrong with that tractor that wasn't disclosed to him. I'm sure that's not the first time that's ever happened. And there's a risk level in selling that tractor to another party because they can come back potentially if they feel something's wrong. Unfortunately, we live in a very litigious society, so there's some downside risk associated with doing that. There's some consignment companies out there. I'll say this. I think they do a very, very good job. But here again, I think the farmer needs to look at what really am I going to make by doing this? And granted, One other thing that I want to throw in here that's changed versus if we were having this conversation two years ago. If you look at the tax law changes Mm -hmm. and you look at how equipment traded 
is differently accounted for today from a tax perspective. That has pushed, I think, some people to maybe look at the consignment side a little bit more because there is not the benefit necessarily of the trade-in from a tax perspective that there was a couple of years ago. But what I would ask people to think about, if you're selling it on your own, how comfortable are you doing? How much time do you want to spend doing that? How much are you going to delay the purchase of something new? If you're not buying brand new, we talked about earlier, use good equipment, is it a premium? And are you going to go ahead and buy that piece of equipment that you're wanting before you get this one sold? I think there's a lot of things that factor into that case and people have got to be comfortable understanding the time commitment. Am I going to work with a consignment company? If I'm working with a consignment company, what do I know about? What is their guarantee of being able to help move this? I saw an instance, this has been about five years ago, where a consignment company guaranteed a producer will guarantee you will sell this piece of equipment. And the producer entered into an agreement with them. The unit hadn't been sold in three months. And the producer went to him and said, hey, I want to exercise my guarantee. And the uh, person at the consignment company said, we didn't guarantee you that. Producer said, are you sure? Consignment company said, oh, no, we would never guarantee that. Producer said, let me show you the email that you sent me guaranteeing it. (laughs) So sometimes there's a little bit of a buyer beware thing out there. But again, I would still tell people, make sure you're aware of the pitfalls of what can happen when you're consigning equipment before you agree to enter into that. Right on. Now, that's good advice because I see that happen a lot. A lot of promises get made that don't necessarily shake out and dealerships are, uh, they're moving more and more towards mm-hmm. a, not that they haven't had them before, but they're really leaning harder on these agreements mm-hmm. and what that looks like. It's not just a market out here, we're going to sell it for you. Thing. It's more of a binding agreement that they're entering into. So, well, so. In, in Casey, let's face it, we're talking about bigger dollars. Today. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, if I'm selling a 1964 40, 20, yeah. Versus if I'm selling an 8370R, there's a lot more risk involved. Yep. A lot bigger dollars going on out there. So, well, Alan, good stuff as usual. Thanks for being on the podcast. If folks want to reach out to you, what's the best way to do that? Uh, my email address is ahoskins at americanfarmmortgage.com. And I'll put my office number out there. They're more than welcome to call me. It's 812 812- Two one three three six one four, and I'd love to hear feedback. And uh, anyone's welcome to call. Thanks, Casey and Alan. We've got even more used equipment remarketing resources that we're sending your way. In addition to this podcast, we're also tapping into Casey's expertise across all our informational channels. If you've got a question for Casey, I'd encourage you to head over to farm-equipment.com backslash ask the expert. Submit a question and we'll get Casey's answer to it up on our Ask the Expert blog. And don't forget to head over to dealershipmindsummit.com to register for the 2020 Dealership Mind Summit in Omaha. You can keep up with the latest industry news by registering online to receive our free newsletters. Visit www.farm-equipment.com. For Casey and Alan, and as well as our entire staff here at Farm Equipment, I'm Kim Schmidt. Thanks for listening.